Hey everyone, my name is Dr. Dolores Tarver. I'm a licensed psychologist here in Georgia, and it is time for the tea. Tea Time with Dr. Tarver is a wellness-based podcast. It is not intended to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health provider. Welcome to April. I know that a lot of you have been fasting and resetting so you can emerge healthier as we move through April. Spring is a time of growth. We get longer days and vacations in there. We also, as believers, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus who died so that we might be set free. Regardless of what April means to you, it is a good time to be reminded of worth and value. So the series for this month is entitled, You Thought I Was Worth Saving Because of My Faith Beliefs in the Resurrection Season. Specifically, today's episode is entitled, I Don't Know How to Fix Them. So, I know you're thinking, what in the world, okay, what are we talking about this month, Doc? Well, a lot of us have a tendency to be other-focused. I've shared that in some of the other video episodes. And sometimes, as we're looking at our own worth, it can be easy for us to think about someone else. We may be caregivers by nature and feel responsible for other people. And so, sometimes, we believe that our worth is dictated by who we're in relationships with, who we help, or that sometimes just being distracted from what we're dealing with to focus on other people allows us to be able to have some sense of peace in our minds, right, when we're struggling. So what I want to address in this season is talking to people about mental wellness. What does that have to do with worth? A lot, because oftentimes we don't feel like we are living as we should if we're not helping other people. We feel responsible for other people. We feel responsible for other people and their wellness. When people are not okay, sometimes it's difficult for us to be okay. We can be up at night worrying about our loved ones, about our siblings, about our children, about our nieces and nephews, about our parents or those friends that we have because they're struggling with things and we don't like to see people struggle that we love. We want them to be okay. We want them to be well. And if they're not well at times, it causes us to believe that we're not trying enough, that we're not doing everything that we've been called to do, uh, that we should be doing something that is going to force them, right? Make them be well. If I try hard enough, if I love them through it, if I pray enough for them through it, if I believe in their ability to be well enough, it will cause them to make changes in their lives. And I will tell you that all of those things, prayer, talking to people about things they're struggling with, allowing people to have space to be able to heal, being a supportive resource, all of those things have a space and a place. But I want to talk with us today about when we recognize that someone could possibly benefit from mental health counseling. Because people ask me that quite frequently. How do you talk with somebody when you recognize they need help? And so often how I respond to that has a lot to do with how frequently I see people almost killing themselves trying to save someone else that they can't save. But I really want to break that down today because I understand that we do feel responsible for people when we love them. 
um, and that can be tied to a lot of things such as how we were raised, our faith beliefs, um, possibly that we may feel like some of the people that we love were dealt a crappy hand in life and because we're in a different space, we should help people who are struggling because people have poured into us, right? So we're paying it forward. So I understand that it's complicated. The answer isn't just as simple as sometimes I'll say to people um, because I, I do know that people have regrets about feeling like they didn't do everything that they could do to support someone or often be able to fix people or save people. So let me set this up with talking about what I'm going to call the helping, the helping categories because I do understand that there are layers to how we can support and help people. And a lot of that depends on where the person is in their own wellness journey. So there may be people in your life that do recognize that they're engaging in unhealthy behaviors, that they may in fact be struggling with addiction or mental illness, and they're contemplating making changes, but they haven't taken steps for a variety of reasons. They may not feel like they're ready um, they may be hoping that something shifts and changes and they won't have to open up these wounds and all of these struggles and have to deal with them. Because as we know, when starting therapy, it can be very overwhelming. There's a lot that is involved in therapy. And one of the things that people don't like the most is being vulnerable, having to actually express and feel those emotions that we tend to avoid, being held accountable to some things that we know are not healthy patterns, but we don't either really want to take steps away from those unhealthy things because we're getting something from it, or maybe we don't feel like we're powerful enough to be consistent in doing different things, or maybe sometimes we don't feel like we deserve to be doing different things. But I will say for those people who may have stated at some point that they know that it would be helpful for them to get some support, Talk to people about observable behaviors. We don't want to label people. We don't want to make people feel bad for their struggles. That's the part of grace, right? People already know they're struggling. They don't necessarily need us to highlight it for them. But what sometimes is helpful for us to do is talk to them about what they've shared with us by reflecting um, the information that they've shared and reframing it in ways that allow them to feel empowered to be able to make changes in their life. Hey, well, we talked before, you told me that there were some things that you knew would be beneficial for you to do. Where are you in that process? How can I support you in that process? Sometimes we can model healthy behaviors for people. It's important for people to understand that a lot of people receive therapy, myself included, and that we normalize being able to see a mental health provider. And you may not need to see one every time you go through something in your life. But there may be times when it may be helpful for you to get those strategies and have this information available to you from a person who is just focused on your wellness, who isn't going to throw it back in your face and use it against you in any way, but will be an accountability partner for you. And so as we talk to people about healthy things that we're doing, and therapy is a healthy step. There are a lot of other steps, but I think sometimes therapy can be the toughest because it acknowledges that we're struggling and we need help. And sometimes we have difficulty being able to acknowledge that we need help because we've been taught that that's weakness. We should be able to figure it out on our own. My problems aren't that bad as compared to what I see other people going through. And then also sometimes, unfortunately, we've received the messages 
that in order for us to seek therapy, that means we don't have faith, um, that we aren't executing and utilizing everything that we have. We're taking the easy way out to try to get somebody to fix something for us. And if you've ever been in therapy before, you know that you're doing the work. Nobody's doing the work for you. We can also invite people to do healthy things because therapy may be something you work toward. But maybe we want to start with a walk together. Maybe we want to start with cooking healthy meals together. Maybe we want to start with a garden or, hey, come with me to this painting class. And so I'm just modeling some other wellness-based strategies. Uh, here's a book. Have you um, taken a look at it? Let's read it together. I mean, it's a Bible study with me, right? So everything that we do that can be healthy is not necessarily limited to therapy. There's a, a wealth of things that we can do. And sometimes modeling for people, inviting them to do healthy things can allow people to then feel more comfortable taking another step after they've tried to implement some other things. And again, they feel that they're supported in a non-judgmental way. Then you may want to ask them if they've considered mental health treatment. And it is important for us not to come across as judgmental. And I do understand that when we're talking about difficult things and people already have a lot of guilt and shame, that they may perceive it as judgment. But you want to be open and reflect to them, hey, this in no way takes away from who you are as a person, your abilities, your worth, and your value. It is absolutely important for all of us to recognize that we'll need help at various stages in our lives. And we'll be able to learn things that will allow us to be able to move through this process and eventually be able to deal with things in a different way. And I am here to support you in whatever that journey looks like for you. Now, as we talk people through what help seeking might look like, it's important for us to discuss some practical things. I do not want us to assume that everyone has the resources to be able to afford therapy. Everybody doesn't have mental health coverage on their insurance plan. Everyone doesn't have insurance and everyone doesn't have a manageable copay. Some people's copays are what some people charge for not having insurance, self-pay rates. And so it's important for us to talk about payment options, particularly when you're looking at things like rehab, treatment facilities, inpatient treatment, those kind of things that can be much more expensive and plans often don't cover the bulk of that cost. And so that may be coming out of someone's pocket. And so we may have to be able to figure out what that might look like and what our options are. What are some resources in the community that would be affordable? And that will allow us to be able to identify providers. So that's the next step. It's important when people are trying to figure out accessing mental health services, that they know where they can look to find culturally responsive providers. It is important for people to connect. Therapy is like any other relationship. And if you don't have the right person to connect with you, that could offset your desire to go to therapy. You go in a space and you feel like this person doesn't understand you. Um, they're asking you all of these questions and you feel like you're having to explain to them who you are uh, and what you struggle with. Or it feels like it's just so far from their experience that you can't relate to them and it doesn't feel like they can relate to you. Those are typically reasons why people will stop coming to therapy. So we want to stack the deck, if you will, by having some options available of appropriate providers for a person, which could mean a consult. A lot of providers are happy to give you a brief consult to talk about their treatment approach, to talk to you about what types of payment they accept, 
in if they have openings right now because we don't want to refer someone to a place that isn't accepting new clients for six weeks or six months and they need more immediate care. Uh, it may be helpful to walk someone through where to get the paperwork from, how to complete the paperwork. It can be a daunting and overwhelming process to fill out that paperwork. That's a way that you can potentially support people helping them to schedule an appointment. And now it is important for people to schedule their own appointments um, unless they're a minor. But as adults, you won't be able to schedule another adult's appointment. So they'll have to do that. But you can be right there with them. You can help them um, by getting the number out and even help them in determining what they want to say before they make that phone call so they're not stumbling around and they feel more prepared and supported in that moment. And then there's a follow through with treatment. Perhaps you would like for me to accompany you to your appointment. Not that I'm necessarily going to be in the session, but that I drive you um, or that I meet you afterwards, right? So that you have some support, like oh, I went to therapy, I want to debrief. So those are some of the ways that you can support people when they actually are interested in seeking mental health treatment. Then the next category I would say are people who recognize that they are unhealthy, but they're not willing to make changes. These are often the people that cause us the most concern, that have us up at night, that we feel that responsibility for because we're recognizing that they need help and they're unwilling to get that help. And so we're trying everything that we can to try to get them in treatment, but they don't think therapy works for them. They're not willing to go to that recovery program. They think, sure, this could be beneficial for other people, but it won't work for me. When I'm ready to make the changes, I will make the changes. If you love me, then you'll deal with it. Stop bringing that up to me. Right? So these are just some of the reasons that people will say and oftentimes can become very defensive about it and throw things back on you about what you need and how you need to address your own issues and stop talking to them about stuff that they need to do. Worry about your own self. Right. And so I know that a lot of us in those cases, our tendency is to dig in more. Right? I call that the broken record. Because we do have options about how we engage this person. The broken record is you keep bringing it up over and over again. You need help. You need to make changes. Um, nothing is going to happen different in your life if you don't make these changes. You can't keep saying everyone else is the problem. When you're the common denominator, All and we keep going over and over and over again. And I want you to ask yourself, has that approach ever actually helped? Likely answer to that is no or rarely at best. But that approach doesn't tend to work because again, this category of person recognizes they are unhealthy, but they're unwilling to make those changes. And that could be for a variety of reasons. They might be afraid. Um, they might be concerned, what if I try this and nothing changes? I'm still out here dealing with this stuff. Uh, they might have to really dig down deep to some stuff that's buried that they don't wanna face and confront. And we know that avoidance is one of the top coping mechanisms for people because we don't like being in emotional pain. Another option for this category of person is to set boundaries. How and when you're going to talk to this person and about what you're going to talk to this person. So it's important for us to steer the conversation so that we don't end up going down the broken record route. So when they call to complain, then you may change the subject or you may get off the phone. When they call you at 3 a.m. in the morning, you may have that phone on do not disturb and you may choose not to answer it because you recognize 
that they're not going to be willing to do anything different about their situation. They're just not there yet. And so you don't want to get roped into it. It doesn't mean that you don't love them, but you recognize the third approach, which is the back off. Uh, in other words, the three C's, and this is from the addiction uh, model of, of recovery. Now, the three C's are I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. Very similar to the mindfulness approaches that we have talked about before. So what happens with that three C's model of addiction um, is recognizing that there are a lot of things that cause people to struggle with their psychological issues as well as their addictions. Those can be biological, so that comes from genetics, inherited, we pass things on, unfortunately, just like your hair color and your eye color. We can also pass down psychological illness and addiction. We also understand the role of the environment and our social influences in that. So when we're in environments that reinforce particular ways of developing, of ways of thinking, ways of um, coping, then we are likely to do what we see. And so those things are often reinforced in our environments. And then there is the psychological piece that we actually have illness. And I think sometimes it's difficult for people to see addiction as illness. It's difficult for people to see depression as illness. We think that these are things people create and therefore they could just stop them. But that's not true. And so it's important for us to understand that you can't love someone enough. You can't bribe them. You can't reason with them um, when they are in the throes of addiction or dealing with the uh, dysfunctional dynamics that sometimes can come along with mental illness because it affects how we think, what we perceive, um, and also how we manage different things in our lives. The only thing that you can do is be supportive when they decide to seek treatment. And we've talked about some other ways to be supportive as well, but recognizing that you can't force them into treatment. They have to make that decision on their own and that they are absolutely going to blame or attack you as a part of their illness. But it is important for you to respect their boundary that they decide not to invest in treatment right now. And even, that's not, even though that's not the outcome that you want, it is their choice. And that's part of how you support people is you allow them to be able to experience consequences for their choices. The next category are the people that don't recognize they're unhealthy. And these are the people that I think cause the most anger and frustration and hurt uh, in us and anxiety because we know that there are a lot of different ways why people don't understand they're unhealthy. And some of those include coming from environments where unhealthy was modeled. We just talked about it being passed on genetically. Um, and so that biological component. And so this is all people have known. This is all people have seen. This is all people have experienced in their life. Um, that social piece of it being modeled for them when you grow up in households where people curse and yell at each other. Uh, where love is not expressed, uh, where people are criticized and demeaned, and that is all you experience at home when you go to your extended family's houses, when you engage with your cousins, uh, your aunts and uncles, then you begin to believe that that is the way that people engage. Now, there are the people that are unhealthy 
And they are absolutely willing to recognize that they're unhealthy. Like you expose them to different things. They recognize and engage with other people. They, as they're engaging, they're recognizing, oh, wait, everybody doesn't do this. I remember the uh, first time I, so it's funny that as I've gotten older, um, what I remember growing up, when I was younger, I don't remember people saying good morning when we woke up in the morning. Now, as I got older, I absolutely remember that, but I don't know what shifted. Um, but I recall going to other people's homes and when they woke up, they said good morning. Um, and so I was like, huh, people say good morning. And so it's interesting how you'll experience other things. That's a relatively um, mild example, but I think it gets the point across. You go to other people's houses and they're not cursing. You go to other people's houses and you see um, the, the mother and the father engaging in chores and assisting in, in cooking and doing things that in your household you only see one parent doing or you see one gender doing. Um, when the kids don't have TVs, uh, and so they're reading and they're engaging in activities. They're not on electronics. And they're like, I don't, what? Or they're eating together as a family. Um, and that's not something you grew up with. So there are people who don't recognize they're unhealthy, but they are willing when given information that is different to be able to consider that different information. Then we have the people who don't recognize they're unhealthy and they are absolutely stuck and they are stuck in whatever the illness is, whatever the dysfunctional patterns and cognitions are, they are right there in it and they are not willing to move. And these people are very similar um, to the people who recognize they're unhealthy but unwilling to change. If a person is stuck, you cannot drag them along. They have to be willing to make those changes. And so for those people, I find that boundaries tends to be the best option because you just let them know what you will and will not deal with. Um, and when they engage in things that are unhealthy, you go ahead and remove yourself from the situation. That group of people that's unhealthy and willing to learn, you can go back to the observable behaviors, reflecting and reframing. Let's talk about what this could look like and inviting them to be in healthier spaces so that they see some different examples of things. Then we have people that have severe and persistent mental illness. So these are people that often have a long history of inpatient psychiatric, psychiatric treatment, perhaps a, a history of treatment with psychiatric medications, um, with sometimes with significant side effects, sometimes with a history of noncompliance due to those side effects. Uh, there's usually often com comorbidities such as addiction, physical health issues, a lot of obesity. Um, there may be um, high blood pressure, there could be diabetes. Uh, and often uh, these uh, individuals may sometimes be very paranoid about what's in the medication and decide not to take it or be using substances as opposed to the medication, again, because they don't get the same level of side effects on some of the substances as they would do on the medication. And so, this is a different level of intervention. Oftentimes, because of the level of mental illness, there is a need for crisis stabilization resources. Sometimes people have had to seek conservatorship or guardianship over decision-making to ensure their loved ones are able to access treatment. Again, that inpatient, outpatient treatment may look like um, 
group homes. It may be a lot of case management involved in that. They may have a history of homelessness. And so these are the ones that often are family members and it's very stressful being a caregiver, right? So um, I've talked with you all before that I have a brother with severe and persistent mental illness who um, has been in and out of treatment after our, we lost our father. He really struggled and was homeless for years. I just recently found out he's now safe in a group home, um, able to uh, receive medication and he's doing much better. Right? But those are journeys, and part of those journeys are sometimes that we have to allow people, um, as they reminded me, as the Chicago police was so kind to remind me, he has rights. So he gets to decide whether or not he takes medication. He gets to decide whether or not he's in treatment. And even though I feel like he's a danger to himself, he's able to articulate that he's not. And he's able to articulate that he's not a danger to others. And so you may be able to get them an evaluation for a couple of days in the hospital, but they'll be released because they have the capacity to say they're ready to go. And they don't have to be released to a facility. They can just leave, um, depending on the laws in your state. We don't have enough resources, truthfully, for people with severe and persistent mental illness, and it can definitely be a challenge um, to determine what those resources are. And I encourage people to take advantage of that case management and other resources in your area to be able to walk through what those options may look like. As we've matriculated through this COVID pandemic, um, there have been additional resources that have become available because of the need. We always say mental illness, mental illness, but we took a lot of the resources away. And so we do have some states that are putting things back in place. So I encourage you to recognize um, to look up and see what information is available. And most states have an information number that you can call to see what kind of mental health resources are available. Then uh, the last category that I'll talk about is the individuals that have suicidal ideation, suicidal behaviors, or self-harm behaviors. And all of those are different. Um, there can be people that have thoughts of wanting to harm themselves that don't have any intent in acting on them. They are just intrusive thoughts that will pop up, uh, particularly under periods of high stress. There are people that have suicidal behaviors, so they have the thoughts and they've acted on them. They've thought of plans, might involve pills, might involve, um, unfortunately, firearms. It might involve hanging themselves. They may have attempted to jump off or out of things. And then we have people who engage in self-harm behaviors that are not necessarily um, intending to kill themselves or even desiring to kill themselves, but their self-harm is to feel something because they frequently feel numb um, and it becomes a coping mechanism for them. So this level um, is also one where you may need some assistance, the crisis stabilization, inpatient, outpatient treatment, um, more significant uh, interventions, but also, you know, being able to get people to providers so they can learn additional skills because we want to arm people with all of the resources they have available. They may need support groups. They um, may need people who are staying with them uh, because they need to be monitored until they're stabilized. Um, this may involve medication as well as treatment, and it can be a particularly long journey for people. And so these are a group of people that need a lot of support. Um, but these also are a group of people that I think sometimes we feel very powerless 
around because this goes to the I'm trying to do everything I can to keep this person alive. Um, and that can be a lot of weight to put on a person. And so figuring out what type of resources are available um, for you when you're dealing with someone who may be actively suicidal. So I want to talk briefly about what taking care of you looks like. We talked a little bit about boundaries. Um, you can't do the work for people. You also can't keep allowing them to violate your boundaries. So you have to figure out who you're going to be to people. You may not be able to be that person they can call at three or four o'clock in the morning because you have children, you have a job you have to get to. And this is um, causing you to have problems in areas of your life because you're not getting enough rest. Um, you get drawn in when they're telling you about these things. They dump on you and then they move on. Uh, or they say, hey, they give you hope that they're going to potentially want to make some changes when really they're not. Um, and so you feel like you're on that roller coaster. So make note of the behaviors. It's sometimes helpful to write things down so you can decide what type of boundaries are going to be best for you. Educate yourself, and this can help you with your boundaries. Learn about addiction, the mental illness that people that you love are experiencing, their patterns of manipulation, what abuse looks like, other types of dysfunctional behaviors. We were talking last week about um, uh, children who are manipulative and are abusive to their parents uh, because they're using all kinds of tools to try to get their parents to continue to take care of them. Right? So educate yourself, understand what you are dealing with so you find yourself with appropriate boundaries and appropriate responses. It is so very important you prioritize your self-care. How are you taking care of you? Are you getting adequate uninterrupted rest? People on crisis alert all the time waiting for someone to call or waiting to have to step in and try to rescue people um, and then you end up in hospital dehydrated, um, blood pressure through the roof or unfortunately even more significant health issues because you haven't taken care of you. You haven't prioritized your eating and your exercise. You haven't prioritized time for you to be away and meditate and not have to be responsible for someone. And it's important that you also get some assistance yourself, right? So how are you going to support and also how are you going to be supported? And your support may look like therapy. Your support may look like uh, a caregiver support group. Your group may look like um, a uh, group for people who are family members of people with addictions um, or people with significant severe and persistent mental illness. So there are a lot of options out there for you to get support for yourself. And then when you talk about how you're going to support that person, are you going to be the person that goes with them to get help? Are you going to be the person that holds them accountable to wellness-based activities? Are you going to be the person they contact if they feel like they're at risk for something unhealthy? Or are you going to be the person that offers prayer, a word of encouragement, um, gives them resources that they can utilize, right? As opposed to you taking on and being responsible for some of the heavy, heavier hitting kinds of things. And we all have different roles, but it's important for us to recognize what that would look like for us. And so in order for you to recognize your worth and your value, you have to invest in yourself and be able to understand that even though, yes, we are all worthy, um, that doesn't mean that I have to lose myself in order to try to save you. Okay, you all take good care and be well.